In the past few months, there has been a lot of changes to what buyers and tenants have been seeking in properties and how developers have been responding to it, with major corporations pulling the plug and deciding to shift to working remotely, there is this huge demand to incorporate a live-work lifestyle. So on this episode of Real Estate Untapped, I decided to speak with Eli Meltzer, who is the principal of Meltzer Mandel Architects, a firm that was founded by Eli's father and focuses on both affordable and luxury housing in New York. And we cover a range of topics from architectural trends to Soho's proposed rezoning to tips to staying in the business long term. So Eli, when we spoke earlier, we discussed two trends that you believe are going to surface, the first being home occupations and the second mixed use zoning. Let's just dive into it. What's home occupations? So I guess the the technical concept here is that building codes, uh, New York City, but not just New York City and also New York City zoning, they allow for what's called a home occupation, which is basically a bedroom without a window, right? Okay. By, by law, any bedroom or a living room has to have a window for light and air, but you're allowed to have uh, an additional room in the in the apartment. Sometimes it's 25% of the floor area, sometimes it's 50% even, um, mm-hmm. which does not need legal light and air. So, and, and the idea there is that it could be used for a home office. So it gives you a little bit more space and it even comes up on the certificate of occupancy and a business can legally be run out of out of what's called a home occupation. Um, so that that's, I think, a unique opportunity for, for live workspaces. But it has some some limitations and it, and it also works better in some cases than others. So I think we're going to get into that more. Yes. And I know that your firm has been very involved in converting office into home occupations. Tell us more about this and the steps that are behind it. So, you know, in the early 90s, say sort of 1993 to 1995, Manhattan and New York was in it was in a sort of a similar position. The 80s was a tough time for the city. The market fell out at the end of the 80s. Um, And so New York was sort of rediscovering itself at that time. And one of the things that started happening was was people started converting old office buildings into apartment buildings. So we did two very large office to residential conversions. One of them was on Wall Street, 45 Wall Street for um, Rock Rose, which is the Algenian brothers. Another was was on Murray Street, 50 Murray Street. So between the two of those, it was about a million square feet. And what we found out when we did those projects was that the, the floor plate, the shape of the of the building for an office building is, is a little bit deeper than an apartment building, from like from front to back, from the street to the rear yard. For an apartment building, you usually want to keep it about 60 feet, and offices are sometimes like 80 feet. Okay. So if we had this problem, like, what do you do with that extra dead space in the middle? Because, um, you know, a, a living room or a bedroom can only get so long. So we we, we introduced the these home occupancies, which the building code allowed for, but they worked really well on these conversions. And people use them for extra bedrooms. They use them for offices, and and it uh, it worked out really well. So that's that's the basic concept here, as we've seen it in the past. And I think I think Manhattan, especially, is in a similar moment now, in terms of needing to rediscover itself again. And uh, and when it comes to especially, I'd say I'd say like Class B office space, I think mm-hmm. that 
that's gotten hit really hard with the pandemic. And I think there's some opportunities there to, to, to try this model out again. I think it could be successful. Okay. Yeah, I mean, so what is it like, let's say for someone who has a two bedroom apartment in the Upper East Side and they wanna go ahead and convert their space into a home occupation, um, what are some of the steps that they have to go through in order to, to make sure that they can legally do that and that they can like file for that? Uh, so, so to take an existing apartment into a home occupation, that, that probably you need to, to change the certificate of occupancy. But it, again, it depends the apartment. So the one bedroom would have to be um, correctly sized to do it. To check if it's 25%, if it's 50%. Uh, obviously, you have to be the condo owner. It doesn't work for a rental. I don't think that right. the, the, the building owner would want to do that. But th that's that would be the idea if you wanted to do it for your apartment. Although I, you know, I've never I, we've never done that. We've never taken an apartment and just changed the CFO for a home occupancy. But that could also be an, a, a way to add value to existing to existing apartment buildings or someone who's who's bought a, a portfolio of of co-ops or condos and wants to flip it. But the key also is is the home office doesn't need a window, so a bedroom already has a window. And it might be more valuable just to keep it as a bedroom. That's mm -hmm. uh, that's that's interesting. Right. So shifting gears now to mixed use zoning, tell us about this and when it was last trending in New York. Yeah, I, I think you know in the '90s, the, another thing that happened was was like Soho became this, mm -hmm. this like awesome place. You know, it was loft buildings, industrial buildings, and and there wasn't much going on, and then. Artists started moving in, and and it started to become what we know now as like some of the most valuable real estate in the world. So, right. so people started getting this idea of of like make of of industrial spaces, loft spaces that people really would actually want to live in, and also maybe work in, uh, and have and have sort of a, a a different type of lifestyle. So they started some of the rezonings in the early two thousands. Looked at this, and they started targeting neighborhoods that were manufacturing neighborhoods, industrial neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. According to zoning, any commercial neighborhood, for the most part, with a few exceptions, can can have residential in it. But manufacturing, you cannot have residential. So they targeted manufacturing neighborhoods and they made them mixed use. So you could still do manufacturing, which is like, you know, factories or workshops. Uh, right. But then they also permitted you to do mixed use, to do residential in that area as well. The thinking that they would stimulate not just conversions of existing law spaces, which was one thing they wanted to do, but even to build new mixed-use, uh, you know, live-work even uh, buildings and and developments and communities in these areas. Now, I don't I don't know that it ever took off like that, um, although lofts are still really popular throughout the city in these neighborhoods. But the the live-work possibilities, I think could be explored more. I mean, just on a simple level, the home occupation in those neighborhoods is, is I, I think it's it's 50% of the apartment size, so it's much bigger. Um, mm -hmm. And that, you know, that could be like a townhouse with one owner, and then the bottom is an office or a workshop, uh, and then they live above. There's, there's lots of opportunities for that. So it's a 50% rule for a home in the, occupation? In those neighborhoods, I think in the rest of the city, I think it's 25%. Okay. All right. 
Speaking about rezoning, I'm sure you've seen in the news that Soho, you know, de Blasio uh, proposed a plan to rezone Soho, something that hasn't happened in like 50 years. Um, yeah. And he has this plan to create 2,300 affordable units. Um, there's definitely a lot of controversy and a lot of topic around this. I know that your team does a lot of affordable too. I mean, what's your response to this? Like, how are you guys reacting to this proposal? You know, I'm excited. I actually think, I think it's very smart politically. The last few rezonings that de Blasio and not just de Blasio, but that, that sort of citywide that have gotten citywide attention have gotten shot down from, from uh, Bushwick to the South Bronx, uh, Southern Boulevard in the South Bronx, to Industry City, rezonings that target low-income neighborhoods are just not palatable right now. So what did he do? He picked the, the, the ritziest neighborhood or one of the ritziest neighborhoods in the city and said, no, this is where we're going to, to rezone. This is where we're going to add density and where we're going to add affordable units. So Nobody who's arguing for affordability or against gentrification can can oppose this rezoning. That that it just doesn't make sense to gentrify Soho, you know. And then at at the same time, uh, this proposal was written by this local city city council member. It was written by the borough president, so it's almost certainly going to be passed. The only opposition is is from from people who live in Soho. Who, who don't want to see their neighborhood changed and from uh, preservation groups, you know, uh, historic preservation groups. So they're going to, there's, that's where the pushback is going to be, but it's not going to be enough to, to stop it. I don't think so. It was politically, it was, it was very smart. It was mm -hmm. savvy. Um, and, but frankly, I think in terms of planning and then the city, I think it's, I think it's a great idea because Manhattan needs like an injection right now. Um, it's just people, the truth is people have been leaving for years because, because young people are priced out of it. They've been going to the boroughs, to Brooklyn and Queens and soon the Bronx. So we need to find a way to, to diversify the housing stock in Manhattan and not just be about catering, uh, you know, to, to, to really wealthy, to wealthy people. Yeah. yeah. And I, but I think it's, it, it's, it's in everyone's benefit because, you know, you just have fewer feet on the ground. People buy condos in, in yeah. Manhattan and only spend a, a month or two there a year. You know, they sit empty the whole year round. There's that, that's why, in my mind, why retail has been going downhill in Manhattan because there's fewer and yeah. fewer real people down there. There's, there's fewer young right. people, 20 to 35-year-old people, who that spends money in stores. We need to find a way to get them back on the streets and into our neighborhoods in Manhattan, and that's going to help the whole city. Um, so, so that's why... I think adding density uh, at, at, at affordability levels that are achievable makes sense in Soho. And it also makes sense because the market rate units can be sold for whatever you want. It makes sense for developers. It makes sense financially. Yeah. And I mean, just, just to comment on what you said, like Soho is experiencing extremely low foot traffic. Like you said, the retail is not doing well there. Um, and a lot of that wealthy, that exclusive group of wealthy individuals, they're not really, you know, they're not primarily residing in Soho anymore. A lot of them, a great bulk of them is, um, you know, in the suburbs. So I'm really curious to see like how it's going to affect, like if it does get approved, like how it's going to affect the pricing in the neighborhood. 
um, is there going to be like more of like a, you know, a rarity for those high end luxury units? And is it going to charge up the pricing or is there going to be um, an opposite effect where people just feel that, you know, perhaps it's not the exclusive neighborhood that it once was and choose not to invest their money into it anymore? Um, the price always goes up in Manhattan. It does. True. Over no, but it's another detail of it, which is which is gets sort of lost. But they there's also provisions there. A, a lot of the lofts that people live in are, are illegal. They never they never rezoned it, so it's not zoned for residential. And there's some loopholes that get taken advantage of for artists' uh, residences or artist studios. That mm -hmm. that's what people have have used to live in these places. But most of them are not artists. So another piece of the rezoning is to is to basically grandfather in all these lofts. So it's actually going to increase the real estate values of those lofts because now they're going to become legal residential units. So essentially what you're saying is that a lot of the lofts that people currently live in, they're only meant for artists legally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's pretty cool. I actually yeah. had no idea. So, so th these, are the, these are the wealthiest squatters in the world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but now they're going to get grandfathered in, so it's good for their real estate value. So they're not, they can't really complain either. And, I, and, and then, you know, a real Soho loft will become probably more valuable because, because they'll, it will be like a rarity, mm -hmm. right? There'll be, there'll be new Soho and then old Soho, and that will have add some value. But, you know, at the same time, we do have to, as like a design community, we have to to take care and to preserve the quality of Soho because it's a special place, and we don't want it to turn into like Disneyland. So, yeah. so that that is important that we that we find ways to to manage that uh, and and to preserve the character as much as possible. So, to end this episode, I was thinking we can take a few minutes and share some tips that you have for those people that want to build loyal customer base. Melter Mandel has been around for over a couple decades now. So what tips do you have for those that want to build a long-term business model? Yeah, we've been around, Melter Mandel has been around since 1995. And then before that, my father had, a, had another firm and he was a developer also in the 80s. So he's been doing this for like, mm -hmm. I, I was on a call the other day, I think he's been doing it for 50 years, so half a century. Wow. <laughs> so this is like this fifth, you know, downturn or crash that he's been through um in terms of 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 the maintaining a loyal customer base you know I, the first thing is when you get work to do a very good job and to take good care of your customers and, and treat them you know in a special way and make them feel special that's very important because repeat business is the best business and then that creates more business through word of mouth and, and through you know you can promote your work you can promote your relationships so that's the, the foundation is, is keeping your existing customers very happy and prioritizing them. Sometimes you get caught up in trying to grow your business and, and you lay out the red carpet for someone you've never met because you think that they would be a great client, but you have a stable of great clients you know, that you're working on. So they have to be priority number one. Um, the, the, the second piece is really trying to find a niche, I think, that people, you, to build a reputation, to do certain type of work in a certain industry uh, and to deliver on it and then you can that's how you can build a reputation which and your name your reputation outlasts or outlives even the current state of your business maybe 
um, because you have that reputation. Whether you're going through tough times or whether things are very good wherever you're at, if you have that solid reputation, that that's consistent and that stays with you. And you do that by by making a name in a specific way for doing specific things. People come to associate you with whatever whatever it is that, that you do. And that takes a long time uh, to build that name and brand recognition. Uh, but that's where that's where the value is really at. Um, and, and then you have to be creative and, and just be nimble. It's like a lot of it is just survival, right? Um, and Adapt, adopting to the times. And I think I'll just share a quick story while we're here is, is I've been working with the, with the business for a little over two years now. And, and, and I sort of realized at one point that we had, we had a marketing and a PR sort of machine that was very much oriented, I'd say towards, towards printed media or at least traditional media outlets. Um, and we had never made the shift into social media. Um, so, but it's not, it's not so simple. It's like, oh, everyone's social. We have to get it now. We have, so you have to first understand, you know, what, in, in other words, the things that work for a business will continue to work, but the tools or the, the, the garments that they wear may change. So the point of, of PR, for example, is, is to build name or brand recognition. So it used to be you did that through getting placed in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal or wherever it may be. Now that, that's still important, but now you have this thing called social media and you have to understand how that plays into your brand and name recognition and how you can achieve the same things, but with a different tool. Um, mm -hmm. So as you move through eras and, and generations, you have to find ways to translate your, your strategies and your strengths to the latest tools and, 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 and to take advantage of them without sacrificing sort of the core principles. Or, or we, we see it from design also as, as we adopt new design technology, computer aided design or the latest software we have to find ways to leverage it that that speaks to our design process and our design values. So we're not like a slave to the software, but we we find ways to use the latest software and stay at the cutting edge. And that 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 takes planning and it takes some vision, but and and it takes investment and capital to stay at the cutting edge of of the business. Right. No, absolutely. I mean, as you know, as the city changes, the people change, the culture changes, the way that people, their mentality, the way that they view things change and the way that you have to attract their attention um, is like a direct result of that. So, I mean, that was awesome. Thanks so much for breaking that down. And thank you for coming on. I really, yeah, really enjoyed you. speaking with you. Yeah, and I'm so excited for others to hear this. Thanks, Leigh. Yeah, this was great. I'd love to do it again. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing your podcast, not just this one, but everything else you're putting out. It's, uh, it's fun to see what's going on over at Fairmont. I'd like to thank you for tuning in to another episode of Real Estate Untapped. If you'd like to learn more about real estate or simply connect, you're welcome to reach me at lazizian at lgfairmont.com or find me on social media at Leigh Azizian. Talk soon.